Oftentimes, we love discussing the Oscars and say, what's the greatest miscarriage of justice? People love saying, all right, what should have won Best Picture that did? You know, Ordinary People of a Raging Bull, Dances with Wolves for Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction, Losing the Forest Gump. Oh, my goodness. Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. What do you say to those critics who say, listen, Jerry Bruckheimer's movies make a ton of money, but they lack the substance and quality of classic cinema? No, I make movies for audiences, for popular culture. Same person who likes my dinner with Andre is not going to like Pirates of the Caribbean. They're thrilled to have Jeremy Renner with us. Is there any kind of friendly competitiveness on set with you guys? Cinephile. I think yeah, there's just more uh, suit envy. The great and lovely and talented Jessica Alba is here with us in the studio. Thanks so much for coming by. Thanks for having me. The great Richard Lewis is joining us. At what point did you find that voice? Did you realize you could channel all this pain into humor and be the Prince of Pain? I was about five hours old, and I was being put down by my family. Cinephile. Does Adnan Virk look like the undercover CIA agent who saves James Bond by killing a crime boss's henchman, smiles wide, extends his hand, and says to 007, Welcome to Tangier. Cinephile, the Adnan Virk movie podcast. Tommy Wiseau also makes a pretty good avatar for James Franco himself, a mercurial, relentless performer whose ambition encompasses a thrilling willingness to crash and burn. And it's that identification that makes the comedy work here. Franco kids because he loves. That's from Matthew Lacona of the San Diego Reader, his review of The Disaster Artist, one of five new movies we'll be reviewing here on the season finale of Cinephile. Thanks as always for joining us. Thanks as always for all those who are subscribing. And that is where we begin. So we need your help. This is my understanding. The way that we can really make Cinephile fly is to subscribe. So I need all of you to do this. I need you to subscribe to Cinephile. Then I need you to unsubscribe. Then I need you to subscribe again. That is a trick for my buddy Ryan Rossillo. Happy trails to Ryan, who was always an avid supporter of Cinephile. But he says that will get the uh, subscriptions up. So Subscribe, unsubscribe, subscribe again, and then to all, all your friends and family to subscribe, and you've got to write reviews. Because I've noticed the last couple of months we have about two reviews for encompassing November and December. So go to iTunes, write a review. What do you think of Cinephile? Give us a rating. I rank my movies at a four Maple Leafs, rank it at a five stars, and that will give us the big push that Dan Stanzik and I are looking for. How about this idea? Yeah. Write a review for every episode. <laughs> New episode posted. What'd you think? Four-star episode of the podcast or five-star episode of the podcast. Five stars. You rate out of four, you can five on iTunes. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm imploring all of you for a push, and I like Dan's idea. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, J.K. Simmons is our special guest today. He's got a new movie out called Father Figures. J.K. is a friend of the podcast. Uh, second time he'll be on Cinephile, and he's great uh, for Scorsese's story. Final one of the year. You know, Marty loves the Rolling Stones. I'll talk about Shine a Light, the documentary he did about the Stones back in 2008. And in honor of James Franco, who's making a lot of noise right now, Actors Showcase will be a Franco, his best films, and we'll get to the disaster artist in just a second. Had a line out to one of Franco's people. Apparently he's gone for the holidays now, but maybe we can try to get him in the new year because I think he's a, a fascinating guy, and he's been everywhere hyping up the disaster artist, so hopefully he's coming soon to Cinephile. But, of course, the movie that roared into theaters is Star Wars The Last Jedi, and here's the shock. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a movie that there's a greater disparity on Rotten Tomatoes between what critics think and what the fans think. 92% according to the critics. 54% from the audience. So for all of you listening and all of you that have seen it, and I think a vast majority of you have because the Star Wars junkies go opening night, opening weekend, 
So either you loved it or you hated it. And I liked it. I neither loved it nor hated it. I thought if you're in the Star Wars universe, uh, it was faithful yet took some chances. Now I think it's, it's important to mention on a scale of one to ten, one is you've never seen a second of Star Wars and ten is you're an uber geek who recites it endlessly. I'm about a four. I've seen all the movies. I haven't gone back and, and rewatched Empire Strikes Back probably in 20, 25 years, but I enjoy them all. I support them all. I think they're the product of a visionary and George Lucas. Um, but I, I don't watch them endlessly. And the, the previous episode, as Dan knows in Cinephile, I did not like last year. I panned that one. Although I like the J.J. Abrams reboot, which was two episodes ago. So this one picks up where that first reboot left off. So if you'll recall, uh, that one ends with Ray seeing Luke Skywalker on the, you know, the abandoned island. And then the movie ended. And now the story picks up from there. So again, I'm conscious of spoiler alerts. I don't want to get too much into it, but I thought if you're a fan of Star Wars, like I said, it was faithful to that universe. It was fun. The only spoiler I'll give, listen, you get Luke Skywalker in a lightsaber duel. Like, what, what more do you want, okay? If, if you're a fan of nostalgia, you go, there he is again. He's got the lightsaber and away we go. Um, I think they did a good job. Ryan Johnson's the director. He did Brick. He did Looper. Uh, he's really been given the keys to the kingdom now from J.J. Uh, Abrams to go and, and do what he can with this uh, franchise. But I thought he did a good job of bringing back those old characters like uh, Luke Skywalker, like, of course, uh, Carrie Fisher and Princess Leia, her final film role, uh, while also getting in these new characters, Daisy Ridley's Ray and John Boyega and Oscar Isaac, and also incorporating a couple of characters who I did think were, were squandered in terms of acting talent, Benicio Del Toro, uh, Laura Dern, kind of small roles for them, which is good to see them pop up anyways. But but I liked it, and uh, I'm giving it three Maple Leafs because for those reasons, yes, it's a little bit long, it's like 215 if you got young kids, they're going to be restless and need a popcorn and slushies and, a, and an intermission. I thought it was 2.30-something. You know, I saw that. It's, somebody mentioned 2.32, but I think the trailers was 15 minutes, a part of that. But maybe That's I'm not wrong. a part of the total runtime. So the total is actually two and a yeah. half hours? That's crazy. Well, in that case, it's definitely too long because I was being forgiving and thinking that, okay, the 15 minutes went by then. 2.32 is definitely way too long. Um, but listen, you're trying to cram in as much action as you can. Dan, did you see it or no? Get out of here. Yeah. No, of course not. On, on the 1 to 10 scale, Dan Stanzik is an integer. Oh, no, I'm probably like a two on that yeah, scale. Yeah. Like, I've seen a few of them, but... Right, not yeah. eager to see them. Yeah. The movie I really want to talk about, though, is The Disaster Artist. This is James Franco's new movie. Uh, so credit to our friend Rick Passmore, who I thought was on vacation, but has now just made a stealth appearance here. I have his copy of The Room to give back to him. So this is how smart Passmore is. He says to me in November, listen, you've got to watch The Room and you've got to read the book. I haven't read the book entirely, but I'm about halfway through it. It's very funny. It's by Greg Sestero, who was Tommy Wiseau's partner. So here's the background to it. As Passport said, you've got to see this first. A24, the company behind it's really pushing it now for an Oscar release. You've got to have this background. So here's the first question. Someone says, I don't know what The Room is. I've never heard of it. I've never seen it. Where do I even find this movie? Is it essential to watching The Disaster Service? No. Is it absolutely helpful? Yes. Because <laughs> I had just seen The Room, and about 20 minutes in, I said, okay, I get it. It's just a really bad movie. Like It's got bad lighting. It's got bad acting. Poor dialogue. Like continuities all over the place. There's a scene in the movie where you see it keeps coming off a rooftop and you can tell that it's fake and it's green screen. And you go, why don't you just use a regular rooftop? And after 20 minutes, I was like, okay, I got it. Like, I, I'm just going to tell Passport, hey, I saw enough of it. All right, understood. But then a weird thing happened. By about 30 or 45 minutes in, it starts to turn into so bad it's good. And then by an hour, I'm really enjoying it. And by the hour and a half mark, I was laughing on my couch. And I understand now why it's become a cult item. Real quick, Tommy Wiseau is this guy who's never said where he's from. Although the New York Times, my buddy Zuba Mahenti told me, did a deep dive, and apparently he is from Poland. But he's always said he's just from New Orleans, and that's it. Uh, even though his last name, Wiseau, would seem to think he's French, although he hates the French and never says fiancé. He always says your future husband or future wife. 
So he's this guy who met Greg Sestero in a film class or acting class. He has $6 million, apparently, wanted to make the room, wrote it, did it. Um, he was belligerent on set. It was difficult. He obviously had no idea what he was doing. The movie, he he does it. It's all himself, though. So he did his own financing, put up billboards in L.A., and it, it closed like after a weekend. It obviously was a huge failure. But then people resurrected. I don't know the exact duo, but there's a duo that loved the movie, and they started pumping it up and talking about it. And all of a sudden, it started getting revivals. And across America, and I think around the world now, you have screenings for The Room. And Zubin told me when he lived in Denver, he said, yeah, I had some friends tell me we're going to go see this movie called The Room. They go, well, is it a new movie? No, it came out in 2003. Well, why are we going to see it? No, no, you have to see it. It's one of these cult items. It's become like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And Zubin said he's in the theater, and they're saying, because there's a scene involving spoons, they go, please do not throw spoons at the screen. We've had this issue, people throwing spoons. And he looked around, and he goes, sure enough, everybody had spoons at them. And there's a scene where Tommy plays football. And he looked around, and everybody's holding a football. So this is this crazy phenomenon, and Franco himself had not seen The Room, but he read the book, and he said, I love this book. I'm going to make this movie. So Franco not only stars as Tommy Wiseau, but he directs it, and it's one of the best films of, of Franco's career because of the fact it's done uh, with so much heart because this guy is an inept failure, but he is single-minded in his devotion to filmmaking, and he thinks he's making a great film, and you can mock, if you will, and we're kind of laughing at him at times but Franco's laughing with him because anybody who has this type of imagination, this type of chutzpah, has to be bold and has to be reckless. And at times you see the way he's behaving on set and you say, no, this is wrong. He's just rude. He's a jerk. He's an arrogant. He's a boor. But he also has this vision. And for anybody who's had a crazy dream, think about anybody who's listening who says, I want to be an actor. I want to be a screenwriter. I want to be a director. Everybody laughs at you. And Tommy Wiseau, even though the end product is laughably bad, there is no denying that. He got it made, and it was a success. And that's what the disaster artist is a tribute to all the dreamers out there. It's a tribute to all those who, who seek creative fulfillment. And the movie's really funny. Um, I love Ed Wood. It's one of my favorite movies. It came out in 1994, and that's about the worst director of all time, Ed Wood. I think it's one of Tim Burton's best films, and Johnny Depp plays the director. And this reminded me a lot of Ed Wood in terms of showing a movie that is just so porous, uh, but all the behind-the-scenes machinations of it. Great cameos. Seth Rogen, of course, James Franco's good buddy, is in the movie. Judd Apatow has a great cameo in which he said, he told the story, I just saw him, I think, on Fallon, and uh, he said, Franco asked me to play this role, and he goes, like, he's like this, you know, Harvey Weinstein-type, you know, lecherous jerk. And afterwards, Franco's like, oh, you nailed it. And, and I saw in interviews, because Franco has said, oh, yeah, that's Judd. And Apatow's like, no, that's not me. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a jerk. I'm playing what James asked me to do in the movie. But Franco's really funny. Brian Cranston has a great cameo. Of course, he and Franco are friends after making Why Him from a season ago. So a year ago, I should say. So if you love movies about movies, if you love movies about dreamers, and it's also really funny, check out The Disaster Artist. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs, and I think it's a really enjoyable film. Next up is Last Flag Flying. Thanks to Amazon. They sent me a nice uh, early holiday gift. I got a bunch of screeners, which I will then uh, discard because you're not supposed to pass them on. But for your consideration, they're, they're including all of these people. So it stars Steve Carell, Brian Cranston, Lawrence Fishburne. And it is a sequel of sorts to The Last Detail, which is a movie I have not seen. It's one of Jack Nicholson's uh, better movies, people tell me. It came out in 1973. Robert Town wrote the script. He wrote Chinatown. I've always meant to see it, just haven't had a chance. But it's um, the story's about Steve Carell, and his son has died overseas. And rather than having him buried at the Arlington Cemetery, he wants to bury him himself, like in his own backyard. And so he recruits his old buddies, Brian Cranston and Lawrence Fishburne, uh, who served with him in the military in Vietnam. His son was uh, murdered in uh, Iraq. So um, it's done by Richard Linklater. 
course, fabulous director and writer and uh, did Boyhood and, you know, Dazed and Confused and all the rest of it. So I would think this is going to be a hit. And I was curious why this movie was not a su- success. In fact, at last check, it only grossed a million dollars at the box office, which is uh, unbelievably paltry considering the talents involved of Carell, Cranston, Fishburne and Linklater. And the problem with the movie is this. It is utterly predictable. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in certain movies, but when you know where the ending is going, you've got to make the journey worthwhile. And unfortunately, in this case, it's meandering. It's aimless. It's always watchable because of the talent involved, because Cranston is a good actor. Carell's a good actor. Lawrence Fishburne can play this preacher. And there's some good laughs along the way. But ultimately, it felt like a very undercooked uh, Richard Linklater film. Normally, the strength of his movies is the characters and the dialogue, and they feel so lived in. This time, you never really bought the fact that these guys were good buddies, nor the fact that Carell's character would search them and look them up 20 or 30 years later. Cranston's now this uh, bar owner, and he's a lot of fun. Cranston always uh, relishes, and he seems to be enjoying himself in the part. He's this guy, hard-drinking bar owner in Portsmouth, you know, smokes, eats a lot, chasing women, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he's having a good time. Carell has only one acting note, which is slumped shoulders, and he's... You know, obviously moping for a good reason, uh, but there's no arc to his character. He's just sad. And Fishburne's this guy. He used to be this crazy mauler back in the day, ladies' man, hard drinker. And now he's a priest. And so Cranston and him are always going at it with questions of faith and how he's trying to change his life. So if you love those actors, if you love Linklater, then obviously it's a must-see. But I was a little disappointed. I'm giving it two Maple Leafs. Uh, I'll give no, 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 two. I was going to go two and a half. But honestly, it's two Maple Leafs because those guys have all done better work. Uh, but I did uh, enjoy seeing it. Mudbound is currently on Netflix. That's the next film I'm reviewing. This movie takes place in the 1960s in Mississippi. It shows two uh, families. One, a white family, Carrie Mulligan, who's married to her husband, a couple of kids, and a black family. Uh, Mary J. Blige is the wife who is getting a lot of Oscar consideration. I think she'll get nominated for Best Supporting Actress. She's unrecognizable. As soon as you see it, that is not the Mary J. Blige that you've seen, uh, whether you're a music fan or just seen her in other performances. And she's excellent. She's uh, the long-suffering wife uh, of this family who is who's working the farm and, and taking care of it. Mudbound, what it has going for it, it certainly feels uh, lived in and realistic and true to that era of 1960s uh, Deep South. Dee Reese is the director, so it's good to see a female director getting recognized, getting this movie made on Netflix. But again, it's another story where I, I don't see how it separates from the other films of that genre, um, which is not to say that it's not an important movie, but, there, you know, a story about a, a World War II era farm in rural Mississippi. Again, the beats are kind of there where you're going to go. And again, it felt kind of predictable. And I kind of saw where the story was going. Uh, it did certainly have its moments. And I thought it was well acted, particularly by Mary J. I think she's deserving of the uh, accolades. Uh, but ultimately, by the way, Jonathan Banks plays the villain. He's like this racist. Banks, of course, is uh, who I love from Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. So it's good to see uh, him play a, a different role. But ultimately, I, I was a little thought it was a little undercooked. I'll give that one two Maple Leafs, but if you love that era or you're curious to see a film on Netflix getting some Oscar buzz, I think it's going to get two nominations, Mary J. Blige, and I think it's got a good chance at a Best Adapted Screenplay nomination as well. That is Mudbound, given that one two Maple Leafs. And real quick, Al Pacino is my favorite actor. Everyone knows this. He has a movie out, which is currently available on demand, and I think they're going to dump it in a few theaters, and it's terrible. It's called Hangman. And I didn't even know about it until like two weeks ago. This is my favorite actor. Okay, normally I know about these movies. Six, the Irishman Dan knows I've been talking about. It. That's not going to come out for another two years. People keep asking, when's the Irishman coming out? I go, 2019. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, they're still filming. Marty takes a year to edit, year to promote. We're not getting this for a couple of years. I, I just happened upon the fact Al Pacino has a new movie coming out. It is yet another 
in the avalanche of generic thrillers that my guy has just tossed out. Like, I just, I'd love to get him on Cinephile, obviously, and just ask, like, just, just why? Like, is it, what is the appeal of making these movies? Like, is, is it a lot of money? Which is fine. If that's the case, if it funds your other personal projects, I know Al loves uh, this film called Sallow. He's been working on it off and on for years, and he loves the theater, and that maybe it, it takes care of those projects, which is totally understandable. But for anybody who loves Al Pacino, I would avoid Hangman. It, it is one of these thrillers. I'll give it. I'll give it to you right now. Guess what the thriller does? He leaves notes, Hangman, and then you've got to find out to fill in the circ- fill in the blanks, and then you'll find out where the killer's going next, and then that is how the conceit of Hangman is. Sounds awful, but let's be realistic. When De Niro was in here, we tried to get you to ask him why he's been doing all these money grabs, and you were just gushing the entire time. <laughs> if you ever talked to Pacino, you would never yeah. in your right mind be like, well, Al, listen, like... The last 15 years, what have you been doing? <laughs> you just talk about, you just yell, right, young classics. Attica at him. Right. Yeah, the only way I could do it is if I just threw you under the bus. If I go, listen, I don't want to ask you this, Al. I have no issue with these movies. I thought Hangman was great. But Dan Stanzik and a few others are wondering, what's with some of these choices? Like, Simone, did we really have to make that one? What was the thought? I don't think so, Al. I thought it was great. Hangman is currently available. Now it's time for J.K. Simmons. A pleasure to bring back to Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast, one of our favorites. J.K. Simmons got a new movie coming out, Father Figures. J.K., how we doing, man? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great. First and foremost, we missed you at Celebrity Softball, and Miles Teller made his second appearance. And I don't know if you've uh, – I'm sure there's other more important things in the world right now. But Miles did go deep, which was a much better performance than his previous Celebrity All-Star Game appearance in San Diego. So we need to get you back to Washington. Can you? Can we get a you know initial commitment next year? We can get a – a, a solid firm maybe I would love to I would absolutely love to and I, and I want to you know as Miles said after his first uh, celebrity softball game chicks dig the on base percentage because <laughs> yeah, I, I think he had you know a couple of ground balls with eyes yes. um, but uh, yeah I guess if he's gone deep now I gotta I gotta beef up and go deep he took it so seriously you were absolutely correct he legged out infield singles the first time this time it goes deep and we tried to get him for an interview at one point he's like no I gotta take the field and I'm like dude it's it's a major <laughs> for TV events. I'm promoting your movie. Get over here. You don't have to play short. Yeah, no, but when you're a wannabe jock like us playing with real jocks, I mean, you know, I got it. That was so cool. And 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 when we got to the field, of course, I was the guy that was like, who, who wants to throw? I mean, let's warm up a little bit. And I grabbed a ball out of the bucket and uh, and some guy comes running up behind me to throw and I, and I lobbed the ball to him and it's uh, Fred Lynn. <laughs> See, I'm, I, I'm on. I'm on a major league field throwing the ball with Fred Lynn. I mean, yeah. I was, I, right there, I didn't even have to play in the game. Right there, I was. I was. Well, that's the thing. Had it made. After chatting with you, I could tell you are a legitimate sports fan. Sometimes I meet people and they go, "Okay, I follow the Cardinals," and you just ask a few questions. You go, "Okay, you know Ozzie Smith," and that's about it. But you are really into uh, the Detroit Tigers. I know that. Listen, were you happy for Verlander to win with the Astros to get that ring? I would think that's a sentiment as a Tigers fan, right? I don't know that the Tigers are the right topic today. <laughs> uh, um, you mean by the Tigers, you mean the Mud Hens, really, is what we're talking about at this point. Here, uh, we, here we can go positive. You know what? Alan Trammell and Jack Morris are going to the Hall of Fame. Yes, thank you. And and absolutely deservedly so. Speaking of Ozzie Smith, you know, who is, you know, richly deserves his spot in the Hall of Fame. But uh, if you put together the numbers and even the defensive stats, 
Alan Trammell absolutely deserves to be there uh, right alongside him. So I'm very happy for both those guys, uh, uh, Trammell and Morris. Very exciting. No question. We'll talk more sports in a sec. But, of course, Father Figures is the new movie you've got coming out. I saw the trailer. It looks hilarious. This is, you know, this is what happens, I find. As you know, this is a really rich time for critically acclaimed films and the Oscar push and all the rest of it. But because it's the holiday season, a lot of people are off and you want to have good choices. And when I saw the trailer for your movie, I said, great. I, I'm watching a lot of really quality, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about, those, those Academy type yeah. movies. I just want to go see a good, fun movie. And that's what your movie looks like, right? Just a good barrel of laughs. Yeah, absolutely. It's got it's got a little of everything and uh, and some raunchy comedy, and then uh, actually, I think manages to tug on the heartstrings a little bit, which is always nice at holiday time. And and I got to say, honestly, Terry Bradshaw is awesome <laughs> yeah. in this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I, we never met during the shooting because our you know our, our plots didn't intersect at all. But I, I got to meet him a couple times, uh, you know, at the premiere and this and that, and uh, obviously a great guy, gregarious fun, life-of-the-party kind of guy, but he's really, really good in the movie. Yeah, I remember. I think he was in Failure to Launch, because those Fox guys always give him a hard time. I think he, he shows his, his butt in that movie, so that's always been his kind of claim to fame. <laughs> but but yeah, how about the father figures? You get Christopher Walken's in this movie, Ving Rhames, Owen Wilson. So I'm guessing your scenes are with Owen Wilson? Uh, Owen and Ed, yeah, okay. playing the uh, the knucklehead uh, fraternal twin brothers, Ed Helms. Right. And, uh, and then... Uh, June Squibb plays my mom also, although she was a, a little bit of the victim of the uh, the old editing room floor. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, but yeah, those those were the characters that I uh, interacted with, and it's you know it's like a road movie, so everybody's kind of got their own chunk of it, and there's Terry Bradshaw's chunk, and then my chunk, and then yeah. uh, we got Cat Williams, and then uh, and then we uh, we finish off with. Yeah, this kid, Chris Walken, who I think has got a bright future. <laughs> well, you know what? You and Chris Walken have this in common. Both can play tremendous villains. As I've told you before, the character of Shill and Jordan Oz, one of the greatest TV characters ever. Of course, Chris has played so many villains in the films, True Romance and so on. But both of you guys are like song and dance men. Like I, I've told you, that episode of Oz where Tom Fantana can see the musical was unbelievable. And Chris Walken has that ability as well. So you guys have a lot of depth, I think, that people realize. Yeah, you know, we should probably get a little vaudeville act together and take it on the road. <laughs> Chris Walken and J.K. Simmons coming soon to you. <laughs> Do a little putting on the Ritz like uh, young Frankenstein, yeah. <laughs> what a great scene that is in the movie. Um, obviously, like I said, it's been a rich and varied career. Whiplash, you know, it, 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 this to me is what happened. I, I read this quote that you said. Listen, I think the Oscar was, you know, partly because it was a wonderful role and I enjoyed playing it, but part of it was recognition for a wonderful career. Do you still feel that way that people were kind of honoring you for, hey, a lifetime of excellent work, not just one role? Yeah, I mean, I think that that definitely goes into the mix there. I mean, it was obviously a, an extraordinary movie, and and that uh, that part was like a you know a gift to me, and uh, um, and I'm you know real proud of it, and real happy with the way the movie turned out. But I you know when when all the award talk started happening, I think it was. Part of the sentiment was like, yeah, this guy's been around and he's not a pain in the butt. And, you know, yeah, why not? Why not give it to him? Because, you know, (laughs) he's done a lot of pretty decent stuff over the years. And Damien Chazelle, of course, went on to La La Land. And obviously we talked about Miles, what he's been able to do. So all of you, obviously, that was a a creative high point. But obviously uh, there's more richness to come. And I'm I'm guessing this is an enormous long shot. But do you guys ever talk about, if not a whiplash too, maybe another collaboration, you, Damien, maybe uh, Miles as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're all certainly still staying in touch, and uh, Damien's shooting his third film now, uh, which is a, a Neil Young, uh, no, Neil Young, 
who's that dude that walked on the moon? You know that uh, yeah, dude? Neil Armstrong. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Neil Armstrong uh, <laughs> biopic, which is you know a total departure from La La Land, which was pretty much of a departure from Whiplash. So you know he's going to keep making great and brilliant and different movies as the years go along. And, uh, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll continue to be a part of those. I think it's a little tougher for people to put Miles and me in the same movie because, you know, those characters, uh, you know, really created such an impression in Whiplash. But I'd love to do something with Miles, you know, down the road or, or whatever soon where, where, you know, he's the alpha male and, uh, right. and I play, uh, you know, some sort of uh, – you know, the meek showing hair at the earth kind of a guy. That'd be a fun flip. <laughs> yeah, reverse the roles. That would be pretty funny. Right? How crazy is this? We're talking right now with J.K. Simmons here on Cinephile, his new film, Father Figures, coming out December 22nd. In your 30-year career, box office receipts in excess of $6.75 billion. You are a box office juggernaut, sir. Did you realize that? Well, and I'm so glad that I that I started out my career just uh, with that 10% of the gross thing. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I got my island in the South Pacific, and um, I'm getting ready to head there for the holidays. Yeah. No, I had no idea, of course, uh, uh, about that insane number. But that's, uh, yeah, sure, I'll take it. I mean, some of those movies I probably have two lines in, but, uh, no. you know. Listen, Spider-Man, $2.5 billion. Zootopia's a billion. And Juno, which was obviously a wonderful film, great with critics. I'm uh, look at it made two hundred thirty four million. That's big time money. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that was that was one of the ones that was a complete surprise. Uh, I mean, everybody there, everybody involved knew we were making a you know really special little movie, but you know emphasis on the little, you know, and uh, and the fact that it uh, that it did the numbers it did was uh, yeah a real surprise. Uh, I do want to talk a little college football with you. Ohio State is your team. There was so much conversation here at ESPN. Who's going to be the last team that makes the playoff, the Buckeyes or the Tide? Are you still enraged that it wasn't Ohio State? You know what? I, I Obviously, I wish it had been. Uh, I think we probably deserved it. But, uh, you know, we didn't get off the bus in Iowa. I mean, if we wanted to be in the playoff, we needed to show up every week and have a good game plan and execute it well. And, you know, the wheels fell off the wagon in in Iowa. You know, we got beat by a good team. I think a team that people, you know, really underestimated at the time and and since even. But, uh, you know, if we'd have taken care of business, there would have been no doubt. And the fact that we left it in the hands of the committee, you know, Last year we got in, yeah, there was an argument that we shouldn't have, and then, and then you know, we kind of screwed the pooch against Clemson, and, you know, so, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, honestly, it's hard for me to whine about it, and uh, I'm going to take such delight in uh, beating the tar out of the Trojans. Yes. Uh, in the Cotton Bowl that uh, <laughs> I can hardly contain myself here, and I'm, I'm by the way, uh, 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 my... Uh, Publicist is a gigantic Trojans fan, so that's going to make it extra special. <laughs> I was about to say, it's on the undercard because it's not a part of the playoff, but I'm telling you, that Cotton Bowl, USC, Ohio State, two huge fan bases, two electrifying schools. Like, I'm with you. That's actually going to be an unbelievable game in Dallas. We'll be there oh, for it. I, no, I'm, I'm very excited for that game. And, uh, uh, you know, and it's a huge challenge for our – I mean, our defense is awesome, but uh, I, I don't know that we've faced – you know, uh, a pocket passer, uh, and actually a pocket passer who's mobile. You know, who's who's uh, that good? It'll it'll be a great game. I'm looking forward to it. It's been such a rich and varied career, J.K. What are some roles you'd still love to do? Is there like a Willie Loman death of a salesman one that you're just yearning to do? You have to do. What are some roles that you go? I got to get this done one day. Yeah, you know what? Unfortunately, most of those I'm kind of. Uh, yeah, all right, all right. I'll do Willie Loman. Sure. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the ones that like over the years I was like, boy, I. 
love to get a chance to play that. I mean, the McMurphy and Cuckoo's Nest is one, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's like, yeah, no, he's not 63 years old. What are you going to, you know. <laughs> so a lot of them, it's just, uh, it's just too darn late. I guess I'll have to wait and do, you know, King Lear in a few years. Oh, there you go. Exactly. There's always those uh, line in winter, as they say. Last right, before, yeah, yeah. Last before, I just think this is amazing for everybody out there who has different passions and different pursuits. As a teenager growing up in Ohio, you played football for several years, but your knees became an issue, so you switched high school cliques. This quote to The Guardian, I went from being a jock to a hippie. It was a very clear-cut decision. I had to be one or the other. I had to forsake that other aspect of myself. I, I know this was long ago that you made this decision, but I, I think of that because there must be so many young people out there who go, all right, my destiny is to do this, and then all of a sudden you've got to reverse in a dime, and either they're not equipped to do it, they're not ready to do it. What was that like for you to be able to embrace that other aspect of yourself? Yeah, I mean, it, it really was, at, at the time, a, a much more clear-cut thing. I, I think, uh, you know, certainly those uh, those lines have been uh, blurred over the years, and, and, you know, people are allowed to kind of be who they are and incorporate different aspects of themselves. But uh, there were there were no ponytails sticking out under football helmets, you know, in, uh, in 1970, at least not in central Ohio. So, uh, um, yeah, once, uh, uh, once that, uh, once that, Part of my high school career was over. I was like, "All right, well, my my knees are no good, so I'm just going to grow my hair out." And there's a lot of cute hippie chicks, and <laughs> you know, we'll see how this works out for a while. It has worked out certainly better than many many others. J.K. Simmons, well, except for except for the hair part, yeah. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Who the hell needs that? All right, in this day and age, yeah, exactly. It's just a pain. J.K. Simmons' new film is Father Figures. Thanks so much for coming on Cinephile again. Come visit us sometime at ESPN. I think you'd have a blast on all the different shows. At the very least, I hope to see you again at like some celebrity softball in D.C. I would love to do that, and, I, and I'm hoping to see you in D.C. Awesome. Thanks, J.K. Thank you. Actor Showcase. Thanks to Tom O'Neill and Chris Beecham, who run Gold Derby. They had me on one of these things called, a, I mean, and listen, I struggle with technology. A Google Hangout, we were supposed to do, I was late, I wasn't sure to get the technology going, but eventually it is on goldderby.com. It's like a good 30, 40-minute conversation of me, Tom, and Chris talking about um, our early Oscar predictions. It's tough to do because it's not even the Golden Globes time yet, but at least we have the nominations for the Globes. We have the nominations for the SAG Awards, which, by the way, threw everybody for a loop. If I can just make a quick comment about the SAGs. Complete omission of the post. Meryl Streep was not nominated. Tom Hanks was not nominated. Best Ensemble not nominated. That's a stunner. The SAGs is normally a much better predictor than the Golden Globes or the Oscar nominations. So if you're a fan of the post, you're either saying the SAGs are a complete outlier this year or maybe that movie isn't as well received by the Academy as we all thought it would be. That's something to keep attention to later on. But thanks again to Tom and Chris for having me on GoldDerby.com for the Oscar picks. The reason I mention them specifically is Chris said to me as we were talking with the disaster artist, he said, you should get James Franco on Cinephile. I just talked to him. He's everywhere. He goes, he's so proud of this movie and he's pitching it. And he goes, he is so charming. I think he would do your podcast. So I've reached out to some of his people. As I mentioned off the top, Franco's out of town right now for the holidays, but hopefully we can get him in January. And in honor of James, maybe we can butter him up. We'll give his best films for the Actors Showcase. He's a guy who's had a fascinating career. Because I remember when he when he first burst onto the scene, you know, playing James Dean in the biopic, I said, God, this guy has so much talent. He obviously looks just like James Dean. All the ladies love him because he's so handsome. And I thought he had a real talent. Even in a movie like Spider-Man, he does a good job. Although originally he wanted, he auditioned for uh, Peter Parker. Sam Raimi turned him down. And then he said, well, I can give you the, the sidekick role, the friend role. He said, all right, sure, I'll take it. So he had some good scenes, by the way, friend of the podcast, Willem Dafoe. 
But Spider-Man does not make the cut. The best films of James Franco's career, number five is City by the Sea, early film he did with Robert De Niro. Again, a guy who he kind of resembles a little bit, especially in that movie. I thought it was a good thriller, nice father and son story, good scenes with him and De Niro, and it seemed to be an indication of the further talent that James Franco had for the world. Number four is Milk. It's a small rule, but he, again, he's really good opposite Sean Penn in the story of Harvey Milk, San Francisco's gay mayor uh, who overcame significant homophobia, discrimination, etc., uh, on to political success and a real symbol for that community. Franco does a nice job uh, playing his lover. Number three is This is the End. Hilarious movie. People often ask me for a good comedy. I'll throw out The Hangover. I'll throw out movies like that. This is the end I thought was hysterical from start to finish. Clearly has Franco's imprint along with Seth Rogen and Jonah Hill and Danny McBride. Really funny movie, and I think it obviously appeals to our young male demographic. Number two is The Disaster Artist, which I spoke about glowingly earlier in my review. And number one is 127 Hours, film we did with Danny Boyle, in which he was nominated for Best Actor. Many would consider it his best work. I'm, of course, ignoring his work hosting the Oscars, which he was dreadful at. He has talked to our buddy Scott Feinberg on Scott's podcast. Make sure you listen to that interview. And when Scott asked him what happened with the Oscars, and he said Franco was in his experimental stage. You know, he did a stint on General Hospital on the soap, and he, he's the kind of guy, and this is what I do love about Franco, is he'll try new things, all right? I'm going to go on a soap opera. I'm going to go to Yale and take classes. Like, he was he was still making movies and still going to school and pursuing literature. On the set of Freaks and Geeks, which I'm giving an honorable mention, I, I don't want to include it because it is TV, but Freaks and Geeks is an unbelievable show, and it was a real uh, showcase for his talent and Rogan and uh, Linda Cardellini and so many others. But, like, on the set of Freaks and Geeks, Apatow would say, look over, and there's Franco reading uh, Ulysses. Like, he's unbelievable. In fact, he really does appreciate the arts. He's written a couple books. He's written a book of short stories. Palo Alto, I believe, is the short story book, which was then adapted into a movie. So I appreciate the fact he's a talented guy. But when he misses, he misses. And obviously, the Oscars, he was awful. Scott asked about what happened, and he just said, listen, I, it's not one of those things where I grew up being a host, where I thought I could host the Oscars. They came to me and thought, let's make it younger and fresher. And when I talked to Judd about it, Judd Apatow's good friend, he said, make sure that you write a lot of the stuff. Like it's, you've got to have it scripted because you can't just do the monologue and then figure it's okay. The monologue's the most important, but you got to have jokes throughout the night. And Franco said, it wasn't that I was underprepared in all honesty. He goes, but maybe I didn't realize how hard it would be, the rehearsing, et cetera. And Feinberg asked him, he goes, I have the same issue because when I smile, I squint. People thought you were high. And Franco said, I haven't done that stuff since high school. I was not high while I did the Oscars, but I, but I get the fact people weren't happy with it. And uh, it's obviously not something I'm going to revisit. So that's just an addendum that are James Franco's career. His top five movies, 127 Hours, The Disaster Artist, This is the End, Milk, and City by the Sea. I mean, I don't know too much else about Franco's career, <laughs> Uh, your brother's gonna disown you for not putting Spider-Man in. You know this. <laughs> yeah, he's furious. By the way, okay. I, I, I was also thinking about movies that I've loved this year that my brother will despise. Shape of Water. Like he he won't even be able to make it through ten minutes of that movie before he says it's the worst movie of the year. But you're right, Spider-Man. He's gonna be upset about. And it. then the only other movie I think needs to be mentioned. I didn't see it, but The Interview got oh, a lot of yeah. press. I thought it was, thought it was awful. There, okay. Passmore, can you chime in? Do you have a mic capability back there? Yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. haven't watched the interview yet, even though it's been so many years and it should be up my alley for the type of comedy I like. But uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, it's okay. Pretty good pretty good little performance. Andy Serkis, that's his Circus deal, but awesome. he, he holds his own. And uh, don't forget about Spring Breakers. As weird as that and bad as that movie is overall, his performance is fascinating. It is worthy of a mention. I didn't like the movie, uh, but he is entertaining. It's uh, kind of like Gary Oldman in True Romance, right? White guy thinks he's black and he's got the dreads and the tapping his teeth. And... More than just shades of Gary Oldman. In True Romance. <laughs> it is like... very, it is very much an homage to that, but in its yeah. own crazy, 
weird way. He and Harmony Corinne really knocked that character out of the park, even if the film felt a little kind of just boring and flat and weird. Yeah, you're right. Harmony Corrine takes chances, just like Frank on that movie is definitely unique. And, and he is entertaining. He's the best part of Spring Breakers. I think he won, like, LA Film Critics Award for Best Supporting Actor. So there was even some Oscar buzz around his performance. Yeah, that is definitely worthy of a mention. And we'll be a second passport. You've got to talk disaster artist. Go ahead. Tell me what you thought of it. You're the guy who gave me the room and you gave me the book. Well, I absolutely loved it. I went and saw it opening night, the 945 screening with my Elmwood people, the guys <laughs> I do the puppet stuff with. Um, and about 80% accurate to the book. A little shorter, uh, but it's shorter than the room is actually. It's about 10 minutes shorter than the actual room, which is, I think, kind of a little hilarious. Um, but yeah, Franco knocked out of the park. Everyone, all the supporting people, there's a great scene there where he's naked coming in and saying he has to be. He's like, no, open set, open set. No, don't close set. <laughs> and he gets into it with Paul Shear, who is a great comedic actor, does a lot of different work here and there. And, Sheer holds his own with Franco, giving gravitas, yelling, you're crazy, and just gets in his face fighting with a naked James Franco. Tremendous scene. There's a number you can call, and James Franco answers it. You called this number. I've called the number. I've got the voicemail. I got the voicemail recording, and the mailbox is full. But Franco occasionally answers it as Tommy Wiseau. He will, yes. And he's done it on different interview shows. He's did it on Conan. Um, he's done it on, I'd say, about three or four other interview shows during his little press circuit now. And it's 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 hilarious because he's he is he embodies Tommy and he'll just start talking like Tommy in the middle of interviews. So if we get him in here, you gotta you gotta try to prod that out of him, even though it might be a little past overdue. A Scorsese story. Martin Scorsese has long had an affiliation with the Rolling Stones. He decided to give back with Shine a Light, which is his documentary he did about the Stones in two thousand and eight. And I think you know, if you appreciate Marty as much as I do, you can appreciate the fact he's not just a guy who makes feature films. He's also someone who loves documentaries. And Shine a Light was his way of paying back to the Stones, of uh, the band whose music he has featured in more of his movies than any other. And he has said this, the actual visualization of sequences and scenes in Mean Streets comes a lot from their music, from living with their music and listening to it, not just the songs I use in the film. No, it's about the tone and the mood of their music, their attitude. I just kept listening to it. Then I kept imagining scenes in movies, and interpreting those songs inspired me to do that, to find a way to put those stories on film. So the debt to the Rolling Stones is incalculable. I don't know what to say. In my mind, I did this film 40 years ago. It just happened to get around to filming right now. Mick Jagger had actually invited Marty to shoot one of the Stones' live shows, but Marty suggested that the big spectacle would be better on stage. So it was at New York City's Radio City Music Hall. The nearby Beacon Theater is actually where they ended up doing it. They thought about Music City, uh, Music Hall, excuse me, Radio City Music Hall. 18 cameras, 18 cameras to shoot the Rolling Stones concert. How about the talent involved? Uh, Robert Richardson, who is, of course, a stellar cinematographer, a long time with Oliver Stone, but also with Marty, and Robert Ellswood, who had just shot There Will Be Blood and won an Oscar for it for P.T. Anderson. So he was one of the cinematographers. Andrew Lesney, who was the director of photography on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So Scorsese had all these guys, and he said it was like being a sportscaster. It was like being a director for a live sporting event because it's a two-hour show, and he's got 18 cameras, and he's cutting feverishly between all of them. And before he had asked Jagger if he could guarantee a duet with Keith Richards at one point, Jagger said, okay, but obviously with the, with their music, they like to be celebrated and they like to be spontaneous. And so there's a lot of, uh, 
as Marty put it, beautifully celebrated chaos. Jump a Jack Flash, some girls, tumbling dice, start me up, satisfaction, sympathy for the devil, uh, as Jagger's wiggling and waggling all over the place. They also show clips, uh, particularly when he was talking to Dick Cavett back in 1972 and interspersed that along with the live stuff of the Rolling Stones. But I think if you love the Stones, if you love music, if you love Marty, Shine a Light is certainly one to be recommended. There's one scene where Keith Richards is just playing away on the guitar. The lips are dangling with a cigarette. It's it's one of Marty's favorite moments because before he ends the concert, you see him hugging his guitar, trying to catch his breath. So certainly music's always been a big part of Marty's career, and Shine a Light is a documentary you should all check out. Thank you so much, as always, for subscribing to Cinephile and all of your support. We'll be back in the new year. A Golden Globes preview with Ben Lyons, our friend of the podcast, and we're still, fingers crossed, hoping to get to Sundance where we hope to see lots of movies out there. Thanks, as always, to Dan Stanzik, Rick Passmore, Pete Genesini, Luis Cornetta, and the entire army of people. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Burke Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.